This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place with your host, Craig Danuloff. After the 66 tour and the motorcycle accident, we all know Dylan went to Woodstock and things changed. Blonde on Blonde came out in mid-1966, and John Wesley Harding came out at the very end of 1967. But there is a world of distance between them. I made the mistake in the conversation you're about to hear in calling it three years, but in atmospheric and artistic terms, it seems like even more. It's useful to stop and think about the time frames, changes, and the progression, because we live in a world of retro Bob, where, as Michael Gray says in today's discussion, every quirky album is just another in an ongoing series of quirky Bob Dylan albums. But we miss a lot in the jumble. And in Chapter 5 of Song and Dance Man, Volume 1, Michael Gray tells us, in texts largely written in the very early 70s when this all was fresh, how the language Dylan was using in his songwriting was changing, album by album, leaving behind the complexity we heard on the previous couple of issues for a series of new approaches. John Wesley Harding, Nashville Skyline, Self-Portrait, New Morning, Planet Waves, Blood on the Tracks. In today's talk, we take that ride, and we learn about and rethink how Dylan left the masterpiece of Blonde on Blonde totally behind, and for many reasons took a new path that was fruitful along the way, but also seemed to lead to the next masterpiece. If you're hearing this, you're listening to our public feed. There's an extended version of this episode, they're usually at least twice as long, available for FM Plus and premium subscribers. You can subscribe right now in Apple Podcasts or at fmpods.com. You'll get the extended versions and bonus episodes of not only this show, but all the shows in the FM Podcast Network, which includes Pod Dylan, The Dylan Taunts, and more. We have no ads in these episodes, and our subscribers and members make this show possible. If you can join us, you'll get a lot, and your support will be appreciated. Speaking of Pod Dylan, our guest reader this episode is the freewheeling Rob Kelly, host of that venerable podcast. For about five years, Rob has been delivering great conversations about Bob Dylan one song at a time. He's still doing it, but now with extended and bonus episodes every month. And yet he still had time to read for us. Thanks, Rob. Now here's our conversation with Michael Gray. All right, Michael. Hello again. Hi. So the space between 65 and 67 was long and momentous for Dylan uh, in many ways. And when we start getting albums again, anyone, everyone can hear that things have changed. This chapter is called Towards a New Simplicity. And it begins talking about what we hear on these first two albums. So we'll start with an excerpt. In contrast to Blonde on Blonde, 
Dylan's surrealism is stripped down to its minimum on John Wesley Harding, the most dramatic example being in that central song, All Along the Watchtower. If Desolation Row can be seen as a circular song, with its parade going on forever, so too can All Along the Watchtower, which is, among other things, a more economical and far more chilling restatement of the same theme. But how does it end this song? There are two alternatives. Either it gets an added element of menace from the very endlessness of the nightmare vision offered as the song goes round and round so that the helpless cry, there must be some way out of here, recurs after the wind began to howl. Or else, if it is not circular in that way, then it ends, as Richard Goldstein argued in a Village Voice review, on an emphatic full stop. Indeed, a terrifying full stop. Just three clean, razor-sharp verses with an end that signifies the end of everything. Outside in the distance, a wild cat did growl. Two riders were approaching. The wind began to howl. And I, I don't find it easy to come down on one side or the other on that on that which way does it end question. I mean, on the one hand, it's um, it is a very it's not a dot 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 at the end, is it? Even though the wind began to howl. In other words, that maybe the wind then continues to howl. Uh, and therefore, how can we be saying, like Richard Goldstein, that it that it ends with a full stop? Surely that that's more like ending with a dot dot dot. Um, it implies wind howling on and on. Um, but I'm quite drawn to the other interpretation, which I, as far as I can remember, is mine, uh, which is that. Um, that after uh, the wind begins to howl and these people have seen these two riders approaching, they turn back to each other and say, there must be some way out of here. Yeah, I mean, I like that. I have no idea, of course, what Dylan intended. Uh, that's not my job. I wonder if the archives, uh, if there's versions or verses that give any clue to this. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I don't. I haven't spent enough time looking at those notebooks. Uh, I wish I had. A lot of people have, and Margaret Daniel certainly has. In, in the circular nature, are you referring to the theory that, I know Paul Williams wrote about it, I don't know if he started it, that the verses are actually reversed, that the order of the song is third, second, first, but he <laughs> sings it another way? I, I'm not familiar with that. Um, oh. I'd like to. I'd like to think about that. Uh, I mean, what is, what is the second verse then? If you go backwards, uh -huh. all along the watchtower, the princess kept the view. Women came and went, barefoot servants too. The wind begin, ends in, ending with the wind begins to howl. Verse two remains. No reason to get excited. The thiefy kindly spoke. Men are here among us who feel life is but a joke. Ends with the hour getting late. And the new last verse says, there must be some way out of here. So the joke to the thief, too much confusion. Businessmen drink my wine. None of them know what any of it is worth. That's yeah. the backwards, play it backwards version of All Along the Watchtower. Okay, well, I guess it's the kind of song where that would work. Because um, it's not as if it's a very crystal clear, literal meaning that we have here. I mean, this is a song of mystery. And, um, yeah, you could shuffle the verses around. I wasn't um, actually familiar with Paul Williams's thoughts on that. He was not my favourite Dylan writer. A lot of people think he's fabulous, but I, I'm, 
I'm afraid I'm not one of them. Well, let's talk about the more general though, because this is right. So we've we've jumped from blonde on blonde to John Wesley Harding. Um, <clears throat> and overall, we've made this change. You happen to call out all along the watchtower to begin the chapter, but talk a little bit more about that. Um the change and the and the feeling of the change overall of those three years. The first thing is that uh, I'd like to say that John Wesley Harding is really a, quite separate from what comes after it. I mean, I know John Wesley Harding ends with two sort of country songs, Down Along the Cove and I'll Be Your Baby Tonight. Um, and when I first wrote about them, I sort of assumed that they were kind of parodies of country songs, um, you know, because it was so unlike Bob Dylan to be to be singing that kind of stuff. But then when when um, uh, Nashville Skyline came out, of course, uh, there we were. The, it was it was all there. But the rest of John Wesley Harding is different, isn't it? I mean, it's much more spare. I mean, it, yes, it's very different from Blonde on Blonde in having lost the surrealism. But it certainly hasn't um, offered the kind of country music simplicity that we get on the albums that follow it. It's uh, it's all very severe, isn't it? I mean, and um, one of the ways in which it uh, stands out is as a rebuke to what else was going on in rock music when it came out at the very, very beginning of 1968, you know. Everyone's albums were becoming double albums. People were starting to uh, be snobbish about releasing singles. Um, many acts just didn't. I mean, Blonde on Blonde, of course, had been a double album, and and uh, I'm very pleased that it was because I wouldn't want any of it cut out or squashed up. But, um, but you know, then we get Sergeant Pepper and... Uh, that is such a lavish sort of packaging of uh, of stuff, uh, and you know the tracks are miraculously recorded on a four track machine, but it sounds as if it's got lavish orchestras and everyone in the world playing on it. Um, and you know the Rolling Stones did uh, Satanic Majesty's requests and. Uh, Jefferson Airplane did after bathing at Baxter's. We were getting into a very self-indulgent, solemn, excessive uh, kind of uh, rock. And Bob Dylan comes along with an album that could hardly be more spare and severe. It, it, it just couldn't be, you know. And, and it's so infested with uh, uh, biblical language. Uh, and this, of course, is something that uh, he has always done and always, uh, always does, even um, blowing in the wind, quotes from biblical text, everything he does. I mean, he, you know, he has been inward with the Bible forever, but he's never made a more outwardly biblical album than John Wesley Harding, aside from the rather different Born Again albums. And then, you know, when we come on to Nashville Skyline, well, that's that's a whole different kind of contrast to the mid-60s work. He's, um, he's really simplifying the language he uses. And I remember the very first time I listened to that album. I was living in a, an apartment in York, 
old York, not New York. And uh, I got this album, the vinyl, and uh, put it on the turntable downstairs where uh, my friend Paul lived. And um, we listened to this album. We were laughing our heads off because uh, it was so, he was so sly about the way that he brought in all this language from uh, Nashville. It was uh, it was such a clever album. It took a while before feeling that um, that he was only actually able to do that because he was being very respectful of the songwriting traditions that he was drawing upon. I mean, it is quite close to parody if all you think Bob Dylan normally does is Highway 61 revisited. Uh, all this, you know... My love, my baby, uh, you know it's it's extremely pop music lyric content, country pop. But obviously, it's very warm, and he's very fond of it. And and who couldn't be? I don't know anyone who doesn't like Nashville skyline if they ever like Bob at all. Self portrait is different, of course, as we know from what Greil Marcus had to say when he first wrote about it in Rolling Stone. Let's let's listen to an excerpt on Nashville Skyline before we before we get too far ahead. Okay. By the time of the Nashville Skyline album, we find, not unexpectedly in the view of its terrain, no trace of surrealistic imagery at all. The images on this album rest as firmly in logic and plain speaking as would be consistent with imaginative expression. They are founded in the logic of traditional rural life, dependent on that life's unvarying rhythms and verities. Seasons, the processes of agriculture, growth, replenishment, and death. Turn my skies from blue to gray. Tonight no light will shine on me. Once I had mountains in the palm of my hand, and rivers that ran through every day. It is interesting the observation you made a second ago. Ton Wesley Harding is such a downshift or such a shift from blonde on blonde. It does get lumped with really the next three albums, but because of the religious uh allegory or or the storytelling in there there's a lot of songs in there that many people would say they don't know what the hell he's talking about as opposed to when when you get to nashville skyline as you say these are very accessible probably leading to the comfort most people feel with it feel with that album that you just mentioned it's not a challenging album whereas john wesley harding really is oh yeah i mean john wesley harding is really quite chilly uh it's very severe and um and and Nashville skyline is the opposite i i like i like the uh the observation about it about it being grounded in uh you know rural life so you don't necessarily have electric light for example so tonight no light will shine on me i mean in a way you know obviously all these lines can be taken uh uh on on two levels like once I had mountains in the palm of my hand and rivers that ran through every day, you know, this is um, this is on on one level, obviously talking about uh, a woman's body. On the other hand, it also works on that literal level. Uh, you know, he is in the countryside here, and in the countryside there isn't necessarily electricity. I mean, this is why, you know, all those um, pre-war blues singers played an acoustic guitar. There was nothing to plug into. There really wasn't. I mean, Blind Willie McTell, 
I think in um, at least one of the towns that he lived in, not villages, towns, they didn't get uh, mains electricity till 1938. You know, they were playing acoustic, not out of choice like Bob, but because there was no choice. And Dylan's very attuned to to this rural life. I mean, he's always loved it in a way. Uh, he likes coming from Minnesota. I mean, it's a long way from Nashville, but uh, but nevertheless, you know, it's not it's not Chicago. It is interesting. I, this there's this grand theory a lot of people have about the last song on Bob's albums, you know, pointing to the next. And, oh yeah. And, yeah. And this, the fact that John Wesley Harding ends with I'll Be Your Baby Tonight, which not only yes. is that kind of song, but has the word baby in it. And if you look at it and look up the set list there to, you know, Drifter's Escape and and Frankie Lee and Pity the Poor Immigrant, it could, I'll Be Your Baby Tonight could easily be from another album. It really does bridge forward yeah. beautifully. Yeah. We have another quote from... Uh, of you talking about Nashville skyline in, in similar vein. It was, after all, quite a shock on a first play of Nashville skyline back in 1969 to hear Dylan singing lines like, for your love comes on so strong. And when we come to the middle section of the same song, tonight I'll be staying here with you, we find Dylan coming on even stronger with this new language. Is it really any wonder? The love that a stranger might receive? You cast your spell and I went under. I find it so difficult to leave. This compares closely with the middle section of the later song, Hazel, from Planet Waves. Oh no, I don't need any reminder to show how much I really care, but it's just making me blinder and blinder. The joke rhyming of wonder and under, and even more so of reminder and blinder and blinder, combined with the playful vacuousness of the melodies of both these sections, suggests the milieu of Hollywood musical more than anything. They go comfortably inside on the street where you live from My Fair Lady, not exactly Dylan Terrain. There's a big section of this chapter uh, or uh, several pages in this chapter where you talk about the real-time reaction and and people not knowing what to think. And and it's very easy to understand, right? Coming out of Blonde on Blonde and a few years and that time, you know, for people was a long time. But all of a sudden, this guy's again doing something you would not expect at all in a society that's used to more of the same. Yeah. And of course... um... You know, I was talking about all those uh, sort of self-indulgent progressive rock uh, developments, but um, it would be misleading to suggest by that that uh, that I felt totally out of tune with that and recognizing that what we needed was country simplicity. I mean, I didn't, I didn't feel that at all. You know, this was the exciting 1960s, and they were uh, still exploding. And uh, who wanted to go to uh, who wanted to go to country music? I mean, it was at the time the most reactionary kind of music that that you know anyone uh, outside of I don't know uh, outside of musicals uh, you you couldn't find any more uh, right wing uh, a genre than country music. And, uh, you know, just you just had to look at any country music TV show or or, or uh, television clip. I, I mean, uh, the clothes these people wore, you know, the Loretta Lynn's. And, and I mean, you know, they were living on a completely other planet 
from the people who went to Woodstock. The the gulf was massive. Uh, and so, yeah, in real time, it was absolutely flabbergasting that Bob Dylan gave us Nashville skyline. Um, but, uh, but you know, he, uh, he didn't go to Woodstock either. Yeah, and there's, you know, you take this album and certain songs from all these albums to task, you know, in the book. I have a, I have a, a few little quotations here, meaning just phrases. Uh, apparently second-rate collection. Somewhere you say the blandness of defeat. It's clear to me that uh, a phrase like the blandness of defeat as a, as a way of condemning uh, his country music or his simplistic more simplistic music. I mean that that is that is straight from when there still seemed to be battle lines. Now we just live in a kind of consumerist society where you just you know go to Spotify or whatever and listen to what you like. Uh, uh, but back then things were changing, and uh, were they going to carry on changing in the liberating way that seemed to be happening late in the 1960s? You know that was a that was the time when young Americans were at their most radical, you know, and the, the civil rights movement had obviously uh, made a great deal of progress, and uh, there were there was a lot of white radical activity as well as uh, Black Panther activity. You were either on the side of the Woodstock people, or you were on the side of um, people who walked around looking like Loretta Lynn. Yeah, and in that first case, to have Lay Lady Lay, One More Night, and Country Pie as what your, uh, um, I want to say leader, but the the, the unwilling leader is putting, putting out, <laughs> it has to be quite shocking. Um, yeah, but at the same time, you know, um, it was it was immediately apparent. I mean, as I say, from my first listen, that it was extremely skillful, and uh, and that really he was on top of this material. He knew exactly what he was doing, which hasn't always been the case down the many decades of his work. But back then, it seemed to be. Whereas um, I think I think I get criticised for calling. Um, self-portrait a mistake in a review that we've just had of volume one in fact yeah. by someone i've never heard of but thanks for the review billy mills yeah well let's talk about self-portrait because the other interesting thing we talked last time a lot about time and the way bob stretches it or compresses it and you know we have john wesley harding in 67 national skyline in 69 and as you pointed out, John Wesley Harding is effectively 1968, meaning it was the very end of the year. So we have 68, 69, and 70 for these three albums, which, and then, you know, New Morning comes, and that's not too too far away, but these three no, albums... I mean, that's that's two albums in 1970. Right, right. I've made this um, observation in other places. I think it's valuable to look at Dylan. If, if there was an artist who just had those four albums... <laughs> And didn't have the '60s thing behind them, as you say. They're they're skillful. They're an evolution of their own. They're full of of wonderful songs, but not something you may associate with Bob Dylan, if you knew 
the 10 years before. Yeah. And by the time yeah. you get to self portrait, you've got a lot of covers and we all know the, you know, the story of that album now that, that we didn't know then, at least in terms of the production and everything else. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it seems to me that you you can always take out an, a particular album of Bob's and say, if this was the only thing he'd ever done, he'd still be great. Well, it, it's actually impossible to say that because if he hadn't done the other stuff, he wouldn't have trained us in how to appreciate him mm. the same way. You know, he's he, he spent a lot of time training people, especially through the 1960s and 70s, in how to appreciate him and not rush to judgment and not expect him to be like other people and not, not expect him to do the same thing over and over again. And, um, and he did that in terms of his live performances and his recordings uh, and the material that he wrote. But, you know, the, the, the key fact remains that the mid-60s work changed all of us because it knocked down the walls of song, as I've said before, and, and everything was possible in song after that for everyone. But uh, to go back to the point about if you just took this little cluster of albums, how would they be? Well, I don't know. I think self-portrait is still the weak member of that cluster. Uh, and that's not because of the covers, because, um, you know, he can do covers beautifully. But... Um, there's just something slightly kind of lackluster about the way that he performs the songs that are most like his kind of folky stuff. Did the revised edition and and uh, all the wonder of that bootleg series change your thinking on that? Um, it didn't change how I think the original album is. And in many ways, I prefer the original album to, to the reissue version because um it makes no sense to me at all to to take layers of recording away from copper kettle and certainly makes no sense to take them away from uh uh wigwam these are uh these are much better on on the first version copper kettle is the most immaculate track it's just marvelous it's absolutely perfect and his voice is so sensitive to every possible way of hearing that song. You know, people have done that song drearily forever. And he comes along and, and, and does it in this very sort of, in quotes, inauthentic way. And he liberates the song and makes it live for you. And Wigwam, you know, I, I love Wigwam with all the trumpets and stuff on. Why would you want to lose any of that? No, the ones that I think are, are lackluster on the original album are tracks like Alberta and Alberta Number no. Two, and uh, and Days of Forty Nine and Little Sadie, but and it hurts me too. It hurts me too. Uh, you know, he he could have done that far better. It's it's a it's a Tampa Red song that he likes. He likes. Tampa Red's material. He opens all those 1978 uh, live concerts with Tampa Red songs. Um, 
He respects them, but he doesn't seem to bother to put much energy into the version he puts on self-portrait. And you know why? Why Alberta and Alberta Number Two? There's there, there's almost no difference between them. Uh, there's a difference between Little Sadie and In Search of Little Sadie, but uh, but ho hum. But take take five of those songs that you mentioned, and then replace them with Annie's going to sing her song, These Hands, This Evening So Soon. Um, I just think, I think the, the reason a lot of people felt like the the bootleg series volume 10 changed their evaluation of self-portrait was that, that as often, if you picked different takes or different songs, you could have made an album that would have had a far different reaction than self-portrait did at the time and, and i'm not sure it would have done in 1970 i think it would have it would have been beset with exactly the same problems of how people could respond to it Interesting. Um, before we continue i want to mention something obvious this entire chat is an extension of the amazing song and dance man the Art of Bob Dylan, the book Michael Gray wrote, and specifically Volume 1 of the 50th Anniversary Edition, which you can purchase at Amazon in paperback or on Kindle. The book was revised twice, though while it was originally written in the early 70s and covers the 60s and 70s in a deep contemporary fashion as we're discussing today, it was updated twice with extensive footnotes, additions, and even Michael arguing with his earlier self. This is the sixth episode of our podcast discussion stemming from the content of the book. And if you've been enjoying them, you owe it to yourself and perhaps to Michael Gray to grab a copy of the full book. Trust me, the great excerpts and info you're hearing here is just a fraction of what you'll discover and enjoy in the full book. I've read it before, but rereading and preparing for these talks, it's nearly impossible because nearly every paragraph has something that I want to discuss with Michael. Just search Michael Gray at Amazon, or there are links in the show notes. Well, that's all we have time for in the public feed. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation, plus the uh, extended versions of every chapter's discussion and even bonus episodes with Michael and 50 more great talks with experts on Bob Dylan, become an FM Plus or premium subscriber. Did you enjoy this show? Then please rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps. Also, sign up for seven days, our free weekly newsletter that puts all the top Bob Dylan news and links into your inbox every Sunday. Use the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening.